evening, everyone. The last few weeks, we talked about some new technologies that were vitally important to the advancement of surgery. This week, we'll return to the literal front lines. War is hell, but war has also taught us much about wound care, infection, and shock. For this week, we'll talk specifically about wound care and infection prevention, which often go hand in hand. Last we talked about preventing infections and treating wounds, we were talking about Lister's antiseptic methods. It was the state of the art for wound care at the end of the 19th century, but it only works when used on a deliberate wound in a planned operation. Antisepsis might work if done before bacteria got into deeper tissue, as the antiseptics could still reach them. But antiseptic and even aseptic techniques are no longer effective if the wound already has bacteria deep in it, which is to become a big problem in wartime. Let's start with William McCormack, a British surgeon who worked in a great number of battlefields. He got his start in the Franco-Prussian War in 1870, where he volunteered on the French side. He was actually initially arrested by the French, who thought he might be a Prussian spy, but even when he was released, he just rejoined the war efforts anyway. He was poorly equipped, but did his best to practice Lister's antiseptic techniques. Kind of hard to perform antisepsis in the middle of a war, but he was convinced that that was the best technology they had, and would continue to apply it for decades. This made him a known expert on gunshot wound treatment, as well as popular for his, quote, magnificent physique and Irish temperament, end quote. Whatever that means. I found similar descriptions in several other sources, so I guess he must have been really buff, because it's mentioned very frequently, although I do not have any good photos. He was knighted and elected president of the Royal College of Surgeons. Six years later, in the Russo-Turkish War of 1876, he volunteered his services again, but this time was actually given proper equipment, and was able to actually carry out antiseptic techniques correctly, to very solid effect, replicating much of the same success Lister saw in reduced infection rates. Finally, in 1899, despite being 64, in other words, way too old for this, McCormack joined up again in the Boer War in South Africa. Their application of antiseptic methods saved a lot of lives and convinced McCormack that Lister had solved the issue of wound infections, and he managed to convince a lot of other surgeons too. Unfortunately, he was wrong. Most of the wounds in the Boer War and earlier wars before it were caused by bullets which were long, thin projectiles that usually passed pretty cleanly through human tissue. As long as they missed major organs and blood vessels, the bullets did surprisingly little damage. In other words, our bullets just weren't that good at killing people yet, which makes antisepsis, again capable of clearing bacteria at a superficial level, still effective. Despite his prestige, not everyone agreed with McCormack. In 1897, one Colonel W.F. Stevenson published a book called Wounds in War, which challenged the notion advocating that any wound to the abdomen should be opened up and examined via surgery. This was in order to prevent infections that might arise from injuries to the gastric system, which is usually full of bacteria. A few surgeons tried out Stevenson's proposals, but results were about even with antiseptic methods, so nothing there really caught on. However, Stevenson was onto something, even if no one really knew it yet. The next hint came from the front of the Russo-Japanese War in 1904. Princess Vera Ignatyevna Gedratz was a Russian surgeon who studied in Germany and Switzerland, and was volunteering her services during the war. She was, to say the least, a badass trailblazer on many fronts. She belonged to a Lithuanian royal family, and so literally was a princess, 
but her parents were extremely progressive, and so Gedrotz was allowed to choose her own path in life. Pretty rare for the time. As you might guess, she spurned traditional female occupations of the era, and took a great interest in medicine. At first, she was mostly self-taught, although eventually she became involved with some revolutionaries and was sent home under police supervision. In order to escape said house arrest, and perhaps continue her formal education, she arranged for a fake marriage with her friend Nikolai Belazarov. I say fake because Gedrotz was known openly to be a feminist, but also a lesbian, both being very unacceptable in broad society at the time. She did genuinely get along with her husband, but just as friends, and it was mostly a vehicle so she could travel abroad and become a real full-fledged doctor. After getting her education in Switzerland, she returned to Russia, but was struck with tragedy. Both her parents died, and she fell into a deep depression, even attempting suicide. At this point, the Russo-Japanese War broke out, and ironically the suffering of war compelled her to action, pulling her out of her depression. She was appointed the doctor of the, quote, Mobile Advanced Noble Squad, which sounds like a great TV show, but was apparently a group of many aristocrats seeking to provide medical aid in the war effort. As part of this squad, she was able to bring a well-supplied ambulance train to the front lines of battle, and so for the first time operated on fresh wounds as soon as possible after the initial damage. In contrast, usually wounded soldiers were carried back from the front lines to be treated at the farther back field hospitals, a significant amount of time after the initial wound. Many of them were already too far gone by the time they arrived. She also adapted Stevenson's ideas and always operated on abdominal wounds, even in the middle of the battlefield. To us today, these seem like pretty obvious ideas, but at the time, the concept of combat medics did not yet exist. Operating immediately on the battlefield and operating on all abdominal bullet wounds were innovations. Gedrotz operated on thousands, and there's even an unverified story that at one point she treated a Japanese prince, who after the war sent her a letter addressed to the Russian princess with merciful hands, along with a specially made kimono. For her innovations, her results were better than anyone yet before her, and her career took off. But the inadequacy of antisepsis for wound treatment did not become really obvious until World War I. Like I mentioned before, earlier bullets did not as often cause very deep damage to human bodies, or expose bacteria into the bloodstream. Additionally, most of the earlier wars were fought in comparatively clean biomes like tundra or desert. In contrast, World War I was fought in muddy, filthy trenches on farmland, increasing the potential for exposure of wounds to bacteria. The weaponry was also new and far more deadly than ever before, especially in inflicting wounds that would spread bacteria. Artillery shells that first saw common use tended to cause massive tears in flesh instead of just straight puncture wounds, which, given the surroundings, quickly were invaded by bacteria. Even if you were behind cover, shrapnel would catch bits and pieces of anything it went through en route into the poor victim, which always included their muddy, dirty clothes, and so evenly minor wounds were teeming with bacteria and caused infections. Results were not good. Systemic infections became common, and mortality skyrocketed. Ironically, surgeons in battle tried to compensate with stronger antiseptics, not understanding that the different nature of the wounds made it useless, and in fact they were actively harming their patients. You may recall that antiseptics like carbolic acid are irritants, this is because they're actually slightly damaging the human cells as well as killing present bacteria. 
but antiseptics could not help with the new deep wounds of World War I, and using stronger ones just caused more cell damage without any benefits. Seeing that antiseptics weren't helping, scientists began to explore new possibilities. Two of those scientists were Almroth Wright and Alexander Fleming, who you may recall from last season as being the folks who first discovered penicillin. They proved that antiseptics don't work deeper in the body, losing effectiveness when in contact with bodily fluids, which dilute them out. Thus, the hunt was on for better treatments for combat injuries. Three possibilities were explored, all of which yield some progress. One, get the human body to better deal with infection. Two, discover agents capable of killing bacteria deep in the body, which we know as antibiotics. And three, surgically removing the damaged tissue. Let's skip over that second one, since that's basically just the penicillin episodes from last season. Instead, let's look at the other two, which are kind of linked. A whole bunch of doctors from multiple armies, including Richard Charles and Antoine de Page, just to name a few, showed that removal of any foreign bodies and hopelessly damaged tissue was beneficial when treating wounds. Seriously, I found a ton of different sources on who discovered this first, but the commonality is that it doesn't become common practice for gunshot wounds until World War I. By removing a breeding ground for bacteria that the body could not possibly hope to repair, infection becomes less likely. This comes to be known as debridement, which is the term we use to this day. The French had similar problems with their ward wounded, of course, but they wanted to build upon debridement. Alexis Carell tried a new method of cleaning wounds by using a strong base. However, the solution was really irritating unless neutralized with an acid. With the help of a chemist, Henry Drisdale Dockin, they pioneered a new technique which unsurprisingly came to be known as the Carroll Dockin method. It consisted of debridement, which hurts by the way, then the insertion of rubber tubes into the wound, which cannot have been pleasant, and then every two hours, Dockin's sodium hypochlorite and boric acid solution was flushed through the wound to help prevent infection, which I imagine was also not great. This was done until there were no traces of infection, and then finally the wound would be stitched closed. This was the first important takeaway from World War I, debridement. Across three different militaries, it became abundantly clear that the removal of dying tissue was incredibly important to prevent infection from wounds. Doing so reduced the likelihood of infection a lot, but even then, patients still sometimes developed infections, which were extremely dangerous and had no true treatment. Two years later, in 1917, the Americans would join World War I, and they found the Carol Dakin method to be lacking. It mostly was just way too long, taking days and requiring a flush of solution every two hours, and therefore being very labor-intensive. American soldiers who were wounded wanted to go home, but the only way to do that in 1917 was via crowded ships being sent across the Atlantic, and there was no way medical staff on said ships could perform the Carol Dakin method on every injured soldier. American surgeons instead tried a much simpler method, with whatever they had available. Apparently, that included copious amounts of Vaseline, because each wound was just packed with Vaseline gauze, and then the area was smeared with Vaseline jelly. After that, a cast of plaster was made in order to observe further discharge from the wound. Haram Winnet Orr, one of the major proponents of this method, was actually surprised by how rare sepsis was when it was used. This pioneered the idea that wounds should be immobilized with plaster or a firm splint, which if you'll notice is kind of the basis for what we do for broken bones and other more serious injuries today. During the Spanish Civil War of the 1930s, Joseph Trueta, 
built upon this idea of immobilization, but applied debridement as well. After cleaning the wound of any damaged tissue, he then sutured the wound, packed it with gauze, set any fractures, and then coated it with plaster to immobilize. The wound was left untouched for four to six weeks, with plaster changed every two months until the wound fully healed. This is essentially how broken bones are currently treated, and it's no surprise with how good results were. Of his first 1,000 cases, only six patients died. By the end of the Spanish Civil War, Trueta and his staff had treated some 20,000 casualties and had only four amputations and less than 100 deaths. By the start of World War II, we had made a ton of innovations in surgery when it came to wound treatment. Princess Gedrotz proved that the operation as soon as possible was vital. Others showed the value of debridement, removing already dying tissue from wounds, helping to prevent infection. And finally, immobilization was vital. And when combining all these methods together, you get some of the modern wound treatments that we have today. That's not all we learn, though. Next week, we'll talk about shock, and the many things we learn about it yet again from the Great Wars. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you like or don't like what you hear, please send me some feedback or a review with the links in the show notes. As always, thanks to my editor, Jojo Tang, my cover artist, Angie Lee, and Muse Open for our outro music.